0: Season two of MuniCast is brought to you by Sastel's innovation and collaboration team. Sastel can help you sort through the noise to create solutions that add value quickly. Whether it's reducing your environmental footprint, driving investment, community development, or just saving money, contact your Sastel account manager to find out more. Live from the Suma office, this is MuniCast, the municipal podcast that tackles municipal leadership and how you can work with other orders of government for collaborative success. I want to start off today's podcast with a land acknowledgement. Saskatchewan is situated on Treaty 2, 4, 5, 6, 8, and 10 territories, and the home of over 70 First Nation communities, as well as the traditional homeland of the Métis. On today's episode, we're very excited to be sitting down with University of Winnipeg academic, Negan Sinclair, to discuss your community and what you can do to work with your Indigenous partners. To welcome Negan, it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Bonjour Sean, nice to be here. Thanks. So, we'll jump right into it. Saskatchewan is home to 70 First Nation communities located within the six Treaty Territories. This means that many of Suma's members likely have a First Nations community located close to their hometown. I think to establish a baseline for our members, could you offer a quick summary of Indigenous governance and how an Indigenous community differs from an urban municipality? So that's a pretty big question. Uh,
1: So I'm not sure we're going to be able to tackle everything for today. But, uh, you know, I grew up um, in a small community called St. Peter's Indian Settlement, which is just north of Winnipeg. And while I don't claim to know, you know, be an expert on Saskatchewan. I did live there and and I, of course, had as many of the similar issues that are faced here in Manitoba. Um, In 1907, my community was forcibly removed off the land unjustly, illegally. In fact, the Canadian government had to pay $121 million in compensation to our community uh, as a result of the forcible removal of our community so that the town of Selkirk, uh, which was at the time just a I don't know, just a small outpost at best. It was a few shops or anything at all. Um, Remove us off the land so that farmers and other people from the town could take over our territory. So approximately half of the town of Selkirk today is on that former site. So, you know, I have a, intimate knowledge of the relationships or the problematic relationships between Indigenous communities, my First Nations in particular, and then municipalities, you know, small towns, uh, sometimes rural areas with uh, councils and reeves and so on. And so there's a really important tie especially here on the prairies between those two entities talking between indigenous communities and small municipalities or town municipalities or even small city municipalities because oftentimes we not only share space and land but we also share a lot of trauma a lot of the trauma that canada has perpetrated uh, has been impacting our relationships in our communities and in my case uh literally ethnic removal our communities were. my community was literally removed so that the town could extend its borders and grow and become the economic one of the economic hubs of manitoba today so the difference between first nations governments and municipal governments is that municipal governments for the most part are independent entities that have jurisdiction or you know control over small elements within the larger canadian society You know, things like infrastructure, like water, in some cases, some elements of roadways and so on. Um, But for the most part, those uh, civic governments are in charge of their municipality, things within their purview, like bylaws and so on. First Nations have a measure of control that's similar to municipal governments. They can handle uh, what they call band council resolutions, which are things that govern Uh, small elements of law on their own First Nations reserve. But unlike municipal governments who are generally autonomous for the most part, uh, although they have to follow things like provincial law and federal law, uh, First Nations governments don't have any independence whatsoever. In fact, in many ways, they are an arm of the uh, Indigenous Affairs Administration uh, ministry within the federal government. Uh, Because of the Indian Act, uh, Indian Band and councils or chiefs and councils is what often they're called, are uh, under the purview, the control, and in many ways are undermined by the Indian act of having any independence whatsoever. While some First Nations have done very well to maneuver and try to find small ways that they can take control over things like, for instance, membership, or in some cases, some elements of infrastructure, they still have to get the permission of the uh, Minister of Indigenous Affairs, and right now we have two of them, in order to be able to express any of their community goals or wishes and so um, it's a very different relationship between First Nations governments and municipal governments in relation to what they can do and then what therefore they can express as a part of their community desires.
0: A lot of our community members that uh, are our members here at SUMA they may not understand or or kind of come into their role as a municipal councillor or mayor with kind of an understanding of of how different the Indigenous governance model is. And I know that leads to a lot of challenges for uh, their Indigenous community partners right across Canada. So uh, my next question for you, what are some of the main challenges that are facing Indigenous communities across Canada right now? The basic, simple way of
1: understanding it for any municipal leaders out there is... Uh, when a small municipality or a town council or, a, you know, even a large urban city council uh, makes a decision, uh, that decision can be carried through with the general amount of you know, swiftness. Uh, they can start employing the law, employing the, the intention of that law almost the next day. I mean, of course, bureaucracy being what it is. When a chief and council passes their resolution, it's extremely hard to have any sort of uh, employment or any intention out there other than the spirit of that law, you know, the community can adopt it in some sort of way, and and I'm thinking about predominantly communities that have chosen to be uh, dry or, well, we be banning alcohol, for example. Um, It's very difficult to employ that law, for the most part, because of the lack of infrastructure, the lack of human resources on First Nations. And so, you know, municipal governments can get things done very quickly, but for First Nations governments, it often takes a very long time, uh, sometimes years to employ and to t- put into effect the decisions that a chief and council makes. Um, the one difference I would say is that when you have the support of other governments or uh, an allyship of other governments to support you, um, like we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic, First Nations governments can get their do- work done quite quickly. So Like when we intend, um, when we put health restrictions into play, for example, uh, First Nations have been very successful to employ those ban council resolutions very quickly. And for the most part, have been very successful in keeping out COVID-19 or keeping health restrictions in place because we know that COVID-19 passes much faster on First Nations than almost anywhere else in this country because of the health conditions, infrastructure conditions, long time instilled poverty due to the Indian Act and so on. So I, I would say that the biggest challenge right now is just understanding that the bureaucracy that First Nations have to deal with is bigger than any other municipal government. I would say that almost... Every, any municipal government that had to deal with the issues that First Nations governments had to deal with just would collapse under the pressure. Um, Indian Act governments, meaning chief and councils, they are more administered. They are more watched over. They have more checks and balances than any other government in this country, including in many cases the federal government, because every penny must be accounted for. Every uh, check that's written must be accounted for, you know, and there is more paperwork, more the work that's required for First Nations governments to the point where they can't even get their basic everyday work done because of the immense amount of paperwork that uh, uh, chief and councils are required to complete. And one of the biggest challenges on top of that is on First Nations, we have a lack of human, human resources, uh, competent people who in the areas of bureaucracy, in the areas of administration, in the areas of accountancy, for example. So what you see often and what First Nations governments are often accused of is corruption but that's not the case at all it's oftentimes a lack of human resources which uh, when you've got an overabundance of demands on of bureaucracy of reporting on money and then you have a lack of people who are capable uh, or have the expertise to be able to report on that money that's where you get this gap and this issue of uh, what's often called mismanagement but the fact is is that when you hammer people into poverty when you chronically undereducated a group of people, and then you give them no venue, no support, no ways in which they can escape those gaps, those uh, systems that chronically underfund their education, then what you get is you get communities that are just struggling every day to try to keep up with the paperwork demanded upon by uh, Indigenous Affairs. And, you know, most municipal governments, if they had those same challenges, just simply would fall apart. They wouldn't have the ability to organize things like snow removal. And, you know, many First Nations, the biggest challenge is the spring when we get all the flooding. And the flooding... Cost that that's demands and and uh, they you know you can't cover just basic uh, everyday things when you're too busy trying to figure out the paperwork or the grant application or the endless amount of reporting that's required to uh, that to account for really basic, simple things in your office. So what I would say is that the biggest challenge is just understanding the differences between First Nations governments and and municipal governments, but also understanding how the speed things can operate and the fact that there's a a big lack of control for chief and councils to be able to employ their their laws and so on. And then, of course, uh, the issue of um, uh, electing those band councils. Most band councils are voted in every two years so, you know, I'd like to see a municipal government try to uh, handle uh, constantly running for election every two years. You know, you can imagine what it would be like if you had a mayor who was voted in every two years and how difficult that would be to run a government because you would never stop campaigning. Uh, you'd be in a con- constant series of trying to make people promises to keep an office to get your agenda done. So those are just a few of the basic things that uh, I think are main differences, but also some challenges that First Nations governments are, are facing. And uh, certainly, you know, I know of also many municipal governments that have done some really great work working with their partner First Nations nearby to support them and to be good allies.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that last point around uh, local governments partnering with their municipal leaders. You were talking a moment ago around flooding. And it occurs to me that, you know, if your partner community next door is flooding, you're likely going to be facing some of the same challenges. So I was just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that and talk about some of the ways that you've seen municipal leaders work collaboratively with Indigenous communities to overcome the challenges they face. Well, You know, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is the body
1: that was assigned to uh, study the issue of residential schools and its impacts on Canadian society, uh, one of the specific calls to action is called Action 92, which talks about governments, it talks about you know, federal, provincial, civic governments, and how they can relate with Indigenous peoples, but particularly Indigenous governments as well. And uh, there's three elements with three main elements, anyways, within call to action 92. The first is that uh, all governments should be working adequately with First Nations in the area of consultation, meaning that we all share land here. Uh, the ways in which we can operate effectively is when we share, when we work together and most importantly when we inform each other on when projects are done so that we can get consent and everybody's involvement in those projects and I don't care whether it's a pipeline or a mine or a dam or a highway or a community center, whatever it is uh, we should be talking to each other and we should be spending time thinking about each other's needs and supports and the ways that we can be good families and neighbors uh, working together for the betterment of everybody. The others is uh, uh, training your employees, training your leaders, training everyone in your office around the issues that have led us to this moment. The the many traumas that First Nations continue to experience in like over-incarceration or child welfare or murder missing indigenous women and girls and how those are systemic. And oftentimes those are uh, because of the lack of uh, infrastructure and supports that enable uh, First Nations people to access and have opportunities within those systems, or at many times be uh, marginalized and um, experience violence from those systems that in most cases are either municipal or provincially delivered. Uh, and then, of course, the third part is how do we work together on projects and how do we make sure that we uh, plan for the future together in the vision of uh, treaty of how do we think of each other? Work together. Imagine a future where our children are living equitably and considerably, and in many cases habitually together. Maybe even be married one day. And so, what we hope is is that uh, we all leaders of this country, all elected officials, work together. Uh, to be able to give us a future or something better than what we've inherited in the past. And so there's many different examples of that. Flooding is a really good one. I think when people are in an emergency, uh, they tend to work together a bit better. But, you know, for economy, the idea of urban reserves is one of the most essential and progressive ideas in Canadian history when it comes to supporting municipalities, oftentimes that are in dire situations or lacking the kind of economy necessary to move forward in the future. And at the same time, You know, we are seeing this movement oftentimes of big box stores and people moving to uh, suburban areas or people moving out of the downtown core of cities and so on. You know, in some cases, urban reserves have been the savior for municipalities across Manitoba, Saskatchewan. And and these have been just lifelines for small towns and for uh, municipalities. But there's also many other different uh, ideas as well. Uh, I'm thinking about the uh, the ways um, employment have operated or the sharing of uh, natural resource territories. I'm thinking about the ways in which um, economic resource projects can develop like uh, like dams, for example, in northern Manitoba, which haven't been perfect, but certainly have given lifeblood to, to small towns that were in a state of decay and also given much needed employment and resource options to First Nations. So, I mean, there's a hundred different examples of municipalities working with First Nations, but it only works if people We'll think of each other as family, as partners, as people who are going to be there tomorrow, not just working for today, but what will our children be like in the future?
0: Absolutely. I, I think it's essential that community leaders see their Indigenous communities that are, are nearby as partners, because for all the reasons that you mentioned, it's really essential that if communities want to have strong regional economic development, that they work with all partners that are available. Across the province, Sestel is engaged with many different municipal organizations who seek to innovate. Contact us to learn more about some of these initiatives and how we can help your municipality today. And now, back to the show. Turning the conversation to reconciliation now, many communities across the province of Saskatchewan have made commitments to reconciliation and honoring the treaties within their governance practices. As you mentioned, it goes without saying that every community leader should and must be reading the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 94 Calls to Action. But how can community leaders move beyond symbolic gestures and take meaningful steps towards reconciliation? A common critique we see is that community leaders aren't doing much more than naming their streets uh, after kind of Indigenous names. What does a meaningful reconciliation step look like?
1: Yeah, well, I listed Call to Action 92 just a minute ago. So I won't go over those again, but what I would say is, you know, let, let's not take away from the idea of naming streets and and uh, doing territorial acknowledgements and um, taking down statues that are harmful and offensive and have terrible historical legacies uh, involving Indigenous peoples. Like, I can't imagine how anybody would tolerate uh, anyone, anywhere, First Nations non-Indigenous, any immigrant. I don't know how any person in Saskatchewan could tolerate a statue of Sir John A. MacDonald at any place because of the tremendous violence that he instilled on women and children in that province, on communities, on instilling the harsh vision of the East, uh, of using the prairies as an Basically, the mine for Canada—the the exploitative place in which they took all the resources and bounty and economic power and took it out east—and and I can't even imagine. I can certainly, you know, we still see the sows of division between the west and the east here in Canada with things like uh, the Reform Party and also, you know, all many different people who just don't like Toronto and <laughs> you know, like it's really hard to imagine a place in which we could uh, have really harmful statues up and and expect indigenous peoples or anybody for that matter to have productive dialogues when you have literally the image of your abuser right in front of you uh, in that space. So what I can talk about is uh, instead of, you know, just quoting back to what I just said a minute ago with calls to action is I can say, you know, reconciliation is about relationship. So that means it's going to look and look different to every place because relationships look different everywhere. What happens in one municipality won't necessarily be the solution for another municipality. There's things you can learn, of course. I think you can learn basic principles like listening twice as much before you speak. Uh, you can learn, uh, you can act uh, with your partners. Um, in fact, if you do anything without your partners, uh, without Indigenous peoples at the table, Um, You are continuing that same path of exploitation and violence that the Indian Act has perpetrated for 150 plus years here in this country. Um, But some really basic principles of listening involves um, being patient making sure that you understand that First Nations governments have more challenges than almost any other government in this country. And therefore, they're going to move at a different pace. They're going to move at a pace that may not always be the pace that civic governments can, can participate in or can travel. Um, you're also going to face different expectations, different protocols. There's cultural protocols that are required to, uh, to work with First Nations governments. Uh, for instance, uh, I remember one time Uh, I used to accompany my father, who, uh, you know, he, pardon the table, he was the head of the Truth Reconciliation Commission, a former senator, and Justice Murray Sinclair. And uh, when I was a kid, I used to watch him go to communities, and uh, he would hold court, and uh, he'd be sent by the province to go and hold court, and he was a judge in those days. And the first thing that he did in any community center or council office, or whether it be the school where he was holding court, he would go around and he would say hello to everybody. And he would sit and have a donut and a coffee. And, and court was supposed to start at 9 a.m. And the bailiffs would be ready and the Crown Attorney would be agitated and the RCMP officers would be annoyed. But he insisted on visiting for at least half half an hour to an hour with people, especially the elders of the community, making sure that he recognized and honored them before he started court that day. And that wasn't him being lazy or being, uh, you know, he always show up on time. But it was because that's the protocols of the community. That's what's necessary for people to understand that they won't respect your decision unless they know you, unless they uh, they are able to understand the perspective in which you come from. So I think what many civic governments think of as a waste of time, think of it this way. If, uh, if a mayor shows up. Uh, We're not going to expect you to make decisions right away. We're going to expect you to visit and spend some time. And that's the cultural protocols of our community. That's not something that's just made up. That is a a long-time, historical, century-old policy of sharing gifts and sharing space and learning from one another. And I I I would say that the last thing is, is... Understanding that First Nations governments have this immense amount of demands uh, administratively and oftentimes may not have the human resources necessary that civic governments have the privilege of having um, and having money that can flow quite easily. First Nations governments just simply don't have that. They're oftentimes following very stringent budgets and expectations from the Ministry of Indigenous Affairs. They're oftentimes at the behest of uh, many of the challenges, many of the emergency situations that they're facing in their communities, because they're often on land that's frequently flooded or, or frequently, um, you know, without the same kind of infrastructure or, you know, I, I I say this to sometimes being a chief is one of the hardest jobs in the entire world, because when you're a chief. You, you live in the community and you oftentimes have a person show up at your house at whatever hour of the day telling you that the pipes are frozen or that their, their front door doesn't work or that there's, they're having some conflict with the neighbor. You know, I'd like to see a mayor deal with that oftentimes mayors have staff that can deal with that and don't have to deal with uh, their individual electorates that are, you know, come into their house at three in the morning, telling them that their pipes are frozen, then they better do something about it. You know, because people of First Nations, the, the chief and council are really the only game in town. That can give employment, that can give infrastructure, that administers the treaty rights that, that Indigenous peoples have, which means you know the fact that Indigenous peoples most oftentimes don't own their houses because of the chronic poverty instilled by the Indian Act. So therefore, the chief is the one-stop-gap, the one representative of that community that can get things done. And that means that that chief's demanded upon more than, frankly, almost any mayor or any councillor or any other representative, any other government representative. So understanding the challenges that First Nations governments are facing so that when you expect them to come to the table, they may not always be ready. They may not always be capable of, especially if they're in an emergency situation, they've got to go and deal with all this over here. And they can't come to a meeting you know, with 24 hours notice, they need more time than that. So what I mean is, is that civic governments have, of course, really important roles to play and important work to do. But so do First Nations governments and recognizing that they have much different challenges and much different capabilities than many civic governments, I think is a good first step in understanding of how do you work effectively? How do you instill this uh, I don't often use the R word or you know, we'll call it reconciliation is just simply understanding that we have relationships with each other. And when you're in with a relationship with anybody, uh, it's best that you work with humility, you work with kindness and love and generosity. And that's how you get to those states of wisdom and those states of uh, collaboration and community. Uh, is when you work with those things guiding you
0: forward. Going back to your comments about John A. McDonald and uh, even just the relationships between municipal governments and Indigenous governments, it has become clear throughout the last year that those relationships aren't always going to be celebrating the great collaborations between the two groups, but sometimes it's going to be confronting painful past. Saskatchewan has a painful history tied to residential schools and 2021 in particular brought the media attention to the 751 unmarked graves at Calais' First Nation, along with several other reports coming from other Indigenous communities in Saskatchewan and also across Canada. So So, I I wanna mm -hmm. ask you here, how can municipal leaders support these communities? And do you think municipal leaders and communities bear any responsibility in assisting with this painful process?
1: Yeah, we are in a stage in this country in which there's a lot of awakening happening. And a lot of that awakening is happening on the side of Canadians uh, because for First Nations, uh, we know about our lost children. We Every single community in this country has a story of lost children, children who were sent to the schools and never came home. And, and um, you know, First Nations know exactly what happened to them or know exactly uh, where they went. Uh, they know exactly... Uh, That something occurred in that building over there that took our children that we're legally required to send to and in many cases the RCMP came in and stole our children. So we know that they experienced great violence and in many cases were killed or murdered in those institutions in various different ways. And so that trauma, I think, is something new for Canadians to wake up to and realize that Canada isn't this maple syrupy sweet place, but... Um, It isn't a place that's done tremendously important things and valuable things and um, things like multiculturalism and healthcare and democracy. Of course, all of those were invented by Indigenous peoples. They weren't invented by Europeans. They were were invented by Indigenous peoples who then uh, Europeans used and employed and changed and contributed to, to to make what we now know as Canada. But at the same time, it's also a place, Canada's also a place of violence and of genocide in which things have happened that have impacted us all. And yes, Indigenous peoples have bared the biggest brunt of that violence. We are the ones who have had the children who have gone missing, who have uh, experienced the legacies of abuse from the survivors who came home and brought many of those violent teachings they learned in the schools back to our communities and in some cases addiction and and uh, this chronic issue of poverty, which ties directly to the lack of education and the Indian Act and, and so on. But, you know, who worked in the schools? Uh, who were the ones who helped build the schools? Who were the ones who uh, had children from the schools work on their farms or sold for their families and communities or, or witness those children being flown in airplanes? Uh, To the residential school, hundreds of miles away. It was everyday Canadians, and it was everyday Canadians who participated in the system, although they may not have always known that they were participating in a genocidal system. They still were a part of a country that perpetrated this harm, and that they voted in leaders who made those decisions to perpetrate those harms. They benefited from the lands that were stolen. From First Nations. They were people who uh, continue to live in a country where the very society and the culture itself is based on the position that Indigenous peoples are inferior and savage and lesser than Canadians. And that Canadians are the ones who are superior. They're the ones who are better. They're the ones who are taught that they're the ones to bring all of the solutions and the civility to Indigenous peoples. So, you know, Canadians have been impacted by the schools too and it's a real awakening, I think, for Canadians. So it's unsettling, you know, it's upsetting for many Canadians under understandably so that people feel Uh, angry when they find that out they feel concerned and they feel sad and depressed and understandably some Canadians are still in denial about it and and that's a position that I think we need to work with and help people to understand that it doesn't make people bad people because you come from a country that perpetrated genocide yeah you come from a country that has uh, many a very complex past and understanding that makes you the most Canadian of all and at the same time, municipal governments, upon realizing that, which are led by Canadians, upon awakening to Canada's past, can realize that you can be part of a different future. You can be part of a future of collaboration and sharing and, and a tomorrow where our children can be married and, and work together and live together and see each other as family members, treaty people. You know, you can live in a, in a country or in, a, in an area you can govern and make decisions that can help to promote that sense of, of sharing and that sense of relationality and kinship. You can pass laws that ensure that that violence is stopped. Uh, in the areas of child welfare, murder, missing Indigenous women and girls, or the chronic problems of education. Like, as a civic leader, you have tremendous power to work with Indigenous peoples to stop that violent history and to promote a more equitable and more just future. You can do that all the time, whether it be legislating and insisting and working hard to, with the First Nations, to create an urban reserve or a meaningful partnership on resource. Uh, project, or, or whether it just simply be honoring and recognizing your partners in an area, and insisting to your electorate that First Nations people are worth listening to, and, and worth listening to in terms of the biggest challenge of all, which is climate change. You know, um, it's not often going to be uh, countries in Europe, or you know, many companies that are been destructive in the past or or in some cases Canadian society that will, lead us out of this climate change disaster that we are in. It's oftentimes Indigenous peoples who have been living here for thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years and know how to live in this place, know to help the land recover, to help the waters flow better, to help us live in clean air. You know, it's oftentimes Indigenous peoples who carry those teachings on how to live in this place. And so it might be worthwhile and the biggest challenge of our generation to listen to Indigenous peoples, to work with them and then follow some of their direction to be able to help us to grow in the future, you give our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren land to live on that is safe and, and healthy and that we don't have to worry about, uh, you know, suffering from this cancer or this uh, horrible diseases coming out from uh, our destruction of Mother Earth or, you know, this pandemic that we're in right now has a lot to do with our overconsumption of the world and our our ways in which we have forgotten those basic teachings of how to live and how to live safely and equitably together. And this pandemic has reminded us how important it is to think of the community more than the individual. And that's how we will beat this COVID-19 by wearing our masks and staying socially distanced, but also loving each other more than ever. And that's an Indigenous teaching. So it might just be that living, listening to Indigenous peoples and being a civic leader that insists upon that might just be the most important decision you can make in a government.
0: Well, I'm glad you talked about listening and learning. Last year we had an interview with Tristan Derosier and one of the things he talked about was one of the most important things a community leader can do is is sit down and have a meal with their indigenous partners and and just learn more about the culture and how to celebrate it. So, ending on a lighter note, municipalities across Saskatchewan celebrate indigenous culture and identity in several ways, whether it be hosting powwows, smudging ceremonies, or just even in those collaborative projects that we talked about that are shared between the First Nations and the urban communities. So I was wondering if you'd be willing to tell us about some of your favorite cultural practices that welcome the inclusion of non-Indigenous people and how community leaders can bring these practices into their community to help connect with their local First Nations community partners.
1: I mean, undoubtedly, uh, I come from one of the most we'll call it reconciliation communities in the country when you talk about Selkirk. And so in the town of Selkirk, which is now a city, by the way, I keep having calling it a town, but when I was growing up, it was a town, now it's a city. You know, more people there are Indigenous than almost anywhere else in the country. Uh, we have such a high percentage of Indigenous people because it's literally enveloped around a reserve and many Indigenous peoples who just refuse to leave or they married with Indigenous families. And so, you know, we've been having... In our town, a Métis mayor for decades uh, in different ways and circumstances. And so it's a very interesting situation in my town where uh, people don't have to go outside or think very deeply about our relationships with First Nations because in many cases they're our cousins. And so um, in many cases, just understanding your own history is one of the most innovative and important experiences of all. But honoring that history, like not thinking to yourself that you know it all, but looking into your past and understanding what that relationship is. So certainly having food and sharing time is important. But I would say at times, you know, learning about your own relationships to Indigenous peoples or what I said before, which is that every single part of Canadian identity, all of the Canadian economy is built on Indigenous lands and resources. Every single name of or pathway or road is often an Indigenous trading route or based in Indigenous traditions and cultures. So just understanding your own history and realizing their relationships. But then, you know, my favorite thing that I do is uh, I'm part of a community action group or a community nonprofit organization uh, here in Winnipeg, which we walk the streets. We're called the Mama Bear Clan, and we're part of many organizations. There's many interconnected organizations. There's a group called the Bear Clan. There's a group called Initiative, Native. There's a group, you know, many other uh, Thunderbird uh, people, and then, anyway, so there's lots of different groups in downtown Winnipeg dealing with the issue of poverty, and our group, the Mama Bear Clan. Uh, we go out and offer four important things to our relatives in tent cities and people living on the streets. Most of them are indigenous. Uh, We offer kindness and uh, food. We offer resources and support. We offer a listening ear and sometimes a smudge, but the most important thing that we offer is love. That's the one thing that has been uh, kept from indigenous peoples or forbidden or or oftentimes I think forgotten in the essentiality of this relationship, this treaty relationship, is that we must love each other. And when I mean love, I don't mean that kind of you know, missionistic love, which I got to tell you what you should do, and you got to convert to this faith, and you got to decide to believe in this thing. It's love accepting someone completely 100% of who they are. And whatever position that they're in in their life, whether they be living on the street for a long time, whether they be newly there because of an addiction or a struggle or a suicidal ideation, or, or whether they be people who are uh, at, one, at one time or another just working with and trying their best just to live in this world, we accept them 100%. And we make sure that we uh, tell people that they are valued and that they're worthy. And if they wish to take a step in their life, we're there for them no matter what. And we know their name. We know a little bit of what community and what history that they have. And then most importantly, we say, uh, we tell them our name and we make sure that they know that they are, they can come out to the North point Douglas women's center, which is where we're located and they can come and get supports or a food hamper, or they'll always be welcome. Uh, to get a tea in that place. So uh, what happened in that group, uh, which was started by uh, grandmothers in the north End of Winnipeg, um, the highest percentage of indigenous peoples uh, in Manitoba, is, Non-Indigenous peoples have really picked up in this vision as well. And while it's still grandmother-led and volunteers like myself, Indigenous volunteers, still continue to lead the organization, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of non-Indigenous peoples and in some cases civic leaders. We have a city councillor, uh, Vivian Santos, who regularly comes out and walks with us and helps us deliver food, and and has mentored, been mentored by us to understand what is our vision of giving love to people who uh, who deserve it, who people who should never be forgotten, and that we've been taught to forget, and so therefore we should double down on their recognition. Uh, we should do not just a territorial acknowledgement, then but then take action and say, okay, if we're living in relationship with Anishinaabe, Cree, Ojibwe, Dakota, Lakota, Nakota people. Um, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean? And so every day we say, okay, so this is what it means. It means to look to those who have been neglected and oppressed and marginalized by society and saying, we're going to double down on you now. We're not giving up on you. We're going to double down on you and listen to what you want and make sure that we're there for you. And so that's been my favorite collaboration is seeing the way uh, civic leaders all across Manitoba and Winnipeg have come together in small community groups to deal with the issue of poverty that's been my favorite one by far is seeing those kinds of issues. And in some cases I've seen uh, communities that have returned land to first nations here in Manitoba. I've seen communities that have supported and helped offer relationships to a local first nations when their hockey arena burnt down. I've seen, people offer employment uh, programs to First Nations youth because they know that the First Nation nearby is chronically unemployed, young people don't have the opportunity so that the uh, vast resources that a local municipality has, and when I say vast, uh, much more so than the First Nation, then they can offer and support and give that employment opportunity to that young First Nations person and give them an opportunity for the future. Cause we know that that will mean the betterment of everybody. Uh, every single person will benefit from that young First Nations being invested uh, within, you know, in Manitoba, uh, 20% of us are Indigenous, but we are the fastest growing population by far. Uh, there's nobody even coming close to our speed of population. We grow about half a generation every 10 years. And so uh, in the future, who do you think will be taking care of everybody? It will be young First Nations people who are between the ages of 5 and 19 now. The largest That's the largest group of First Nations people now. And the average age of Canadians between 35 and 49. So... Um, First Nations young people, if we invest in them now, they'll take care of all of us. They'll pay the taxes and lead the governments and lead the dentist office and the carpentry and the businesses just alongside all of their non-Indigenous partners as they continue, non-Indigenous peoples continue to have opportunities and thrive in these communities which they've inherited uh, over the century and a half of Canadian settlement. But uh, First Nations people deserve that same opportunity, deserve that same attention. And that will be the future. That will be the best future for all of us if we all work together and, and try to make sure that everyone is successful.
0: Well, I think ending on that message of love, respect, acceptance, and support is a really strong one. And I want to thank you so much, Negan. Uh, I've learned a lot from our conversation today. And I know our municipal leaders across the province certainly will have as well. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's right. been a real pleasure to sit down with you and talk.
1: Yeah, Miigwech, Sean. Thanks so much for doing this, and I just want to say a big Miigwech to all of my brothers and sisters in Saskatchewan, and uh, you know, I come from Cree people in Norway house as well, which is one of my deep roots, and so I say tanse to all of my Cree relations out there, and of course a big hello and bonjour to all of my non-Indigenous relations in Saskatchewan, my grandfather grew up in regina so yeah Yeah, so i think very highly of that place.
0: miigwetch this brings us to the end of the penultimate episode of season two we sure hope you've enjoyed the season so far but don't go anywhere we've got one great episode left it's our interview with former saskatchewan premier lauren calvert going to be looking back at the past to see what we can take away from it when we're thinking about the future. It's a can't-miss interview with lots of great advice, so make sure you stick around for it come June. And now, here's a sneak preview.
1: My, my own my own philosophy of governance and the role of government is that we don't make social progress. We don't, don't deliver those quality public services if it's not on the basis of economic progress and the challenges continue and always exist to to make sure that we have good solid
0: well-paying jobs and opportunities for our people um, economic strength is the foundation uh, for social strength and the achievement of
1: economic strength it shouldn't just be for the purpose of economic growth it should be for the purpose of providing social service and, and quality of life for our people